Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert, experts on expert. I'm sitting next to expert Monica Padman. Welcome. Hi, expert Doc Shepard. Um, today we have Khalil Gibram Muhammad on, who is a professor at Harvard Kennedy School and the Radcliffe Institute. He is the former director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, the world's leading library and archive of global black history. Uh, he has an awesome podcast that I've listened to called Some of My Best Friends Are. Some of my best friends are, which I didn't get, as, as you'll hear. Yeah, it's a podcast with him and his best friend who's, who's white. Who's white. And they have some have some interesting conversations. Not unlike what happens on our show sometimes. Do you think they better style? No. Oh, okay. Anyways, it's a fantastic one. With his best friend, as we said, Ben Austin, who's a great journalist. And, you know, they get into their interracial friendship in a way that only two friends can do. And it's such a wonderful, privileged thing to listen to them interact like that. Yeah. Uh, I love it. And I think you will too. So please enjoy Khalil. We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that it's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you uh, you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah. Easy peasy? So easy. Well, the best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. Okay, when did paying someone back become social media? What do you mean? Well, let's just say I'm a weirdo and I want to be messy and see what you're up to, like who you're hanging with. I can just stalk your pay app and find out what you're doing. I knew you did that. <laughs> no, I did not do that. <laughs> I don't do that. I use Apple Cash. It's built into your iPhone, easy and secure. You can send and receive money right in messages and keep it between friends and then use that money any place Apple Pay is accepted. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Monica, please keep it in the chat. <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC, terms apply. He's an expert. He's an expert. He's an expert. Okay. Wow. This was a first. Let's just start by saying this was a first for probably you and for us. Which, we got to see the halls of Harvard. We for just one. watched the sausage get made. Yeah. You left your key to your office on your podium. I did, yeah, my, on my lecture podium, delivering my last lecture for the semester. And then uh, a very eager, bright young student had to fetch said key. He thought you were in a different <laughs> building. We stayed with you in the hallway throughout the whole saga. And then Adam, he arrived and he saved the day. Adam saved the day. That yeah. sounds like a new TV show. Adam <laughs> saved the day. And we're out of time. So it was great talking <laughs> to you. Uh, <laughs> oh, I hope not. I hope not. I'm excited to talk to you. I listened to your podcast while I was exercising. I listened to the one about back to school panic. What's it called? Yep. Back to school backlash. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's really incredible. But before we get to that, you're, of course, a professor at Harvard. You're a historian. You teach on race. You have some focus on crime. All things we're hugely interested to hear. Let's start in the south side of Chicago because 
I got to hear the clip on the episode. One of my great enemies, a guy that I would actually like, I'd donate a hundred grand to his favorite charity if he'd fist fight me at Arby's is Bill <laughs> O'Reilly. I cannot stand that fucking bully. So right. sure enough, you play a clip of Bill O'Reilly and he's attacking Khalil and, and he goes, he goes, you know, Khalil, of course, the, the great grandson, or I think he fucked it up and said grandson of uh, Elijah Muhammad, the founder of the uh, Nation of Islam, bad man, oh. a very bad, like he gets so weird when he starts the yeah. cadence. Yeah. And yeah. then proceeds to say, but you shouldn't hold someone's grandfather's thing against someone. And it's like, well, then why did you just do that? What was the exactly. point of that, if not to do that? Yep. But anyways, I find that fascinating. I don't find that as a burn. I'm kind of fascinated by the fact that your great-grandfather was Elijah Muhammad. Yeah, no, it meant that I grew up in a community where a lot of black people own businesses, and uh, there were a lot of bow ties, mm -hmm. uh, dessert on almost every corner. It was a very prideful community and gave birth to people like Muhammad Ali, whose career was sort of emblematic of of a very successful African-American whose commitment both to his faith and to his community is a model for people even to this very day. And even thinking about Bill O'Reilly saying, Malcolm X, another bad guy, is an irony uh, beyond belief, given how much this moment of racial reckoning is very much about channeling Malcolm X's own critiques of the hypocrisies of this country. I've said this on here, in, uh, I don't know, recently, which is, my perception of Malcolm X was like this crazy radical that wanted to annex Alabama or whatever he wanted to do. And he was nuts. <laughs> and then I saw the movie and I was like, oh, he's cool and charismatic and blah, blah. But then I actually heard a speech somewhere. I don't know where, maybe um, a revisionist history or something, but I heard a speech and I was like, by God, he is saying word for word, everything we're now accepting as the reality of systemic right. racism. And I was like, what a 180 from like what I thought as a kid in Detroit. What, what used to seen. be radical. Yeah. Just now. Of like, what a visionary, man. These, these are like the exact points we're just becoming open to agreeing upon. That's right. And the irony of like being a kid growing up in Detroit and having a distorted view of Malcolm X or the nation, that's where it was founded. And oh, really? It, Not Chicago. Know. Not Chicago, it was Detroit. Detroit in 1934 is where the nation, now Malcolm X actually was never associated with Detroit or Chicago. He basically was associated with Harlem. But it's one of those things where we remember Martin Luther King as this paragon of virtue, but the truth is that Martin and Malcolm were very much converging at the end of their lives and starting to see a lot of the challenges of the nation through the same lens, the same problems as you rightly point out, we're still facing today. Yeah, it's a long road for a white dude out of that. <laughs> I gotta say, as someone who's like now interviewed a ton of folks that kind of focus on this and slowly having little light bulb moments. Yeah, it's a deep, deep well to crawl out of that you're just largely, not to excuse it, completely unaware of. Yeah, yeah. T to your point, we are presented as Martin Luther King, right? Like this is the unicorn, this is the guy that, because I presume, peaceful, like just the notion that it was going to be a peaceful, uh, nonviolent protest, maybe it was why he was kind of broadly accepted. I'm not sure, because the messages are pretty similar. So to some degree, yes, he professed this nonviolent tradition that he'd borrowed from Gandhi. But the other irony is that Martin Luther King wasn't considered peaceful uh, by Southerners. He was considered a radical outside agitator who showed up in Southern towns and stirred up trouble in their black people. 
right? In the possessive yeah, yeah, sense yeah. of things, right? And our black people, leave our black people alone. The other thing is even Robert Kennedy, after King gave his I Have a Dream speech, designated Dr. King with J. Edgar Hoover's urging as the most dangerous threat to national security. So it's still a lot of revision in terms of how we think about King as someone who was non-threatening and peaceful and this sort of thing. That's true. And we just interviewed someone who made a great documentary about that exact thing, Martin Luther King and the FBI, which is, at least from Hoover's perspective, it has the ostensible goal of stamping out communism, but clearly really just driven by racism. But there was some bogus justification for all this, right, being kind of a bit of the Red Scare. Oh, absolutely. And the convergence of Black people as both Black and red was one of the mainstays of discrediting civil rights activists. The Cold War, interestingly enough, helped to move the needle towards accepting civil rights because the Soviets were making a lot of propaganda out of the lynchings and attacks on civil rights workers. Yeah, they definitely tried to monetize what was happening, (laughs) how we were treating black folks, right? They would invite civil leaders to Russia even, I think. Absolutely. No, but also in a scramble for like whether Asia or Africa would be friendly to the Soviets or to the United States, this U.S. State Department started to basically manufacture a kind of civil rights utopic vision of the United States to basically say, you know, no, 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 no. We're the home of the free and the land of the brave, Mm -hmm. not the communists, not the Soviets. Yeah, who did they enlist? They enlisted some celebrity, right? Did they not have Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie, sports athletes like Althea Gibson, the famous first black woman to win Wimbledon and uh, U.S. National Tennis Championship. They sent basketball players. Look at these 12 that were nice to (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you can think of it like even in the midst of the Colin Kaepernick protests, this notion that successful black athletes should be grateful for the opportunity to be successful and shut up about Mm -hmm. anything that they think is wrong with the country is part of the sort of the other side of the coin of this notion of promoting this image of racial harmony using athletes. Yeah. I have my own theories, but why do you suppose Chicago was such a fertile place for the movements that then bore fruit when you grew up there, Black-owned businesses. Like, what was it about that intersection of all, you know, the country that made that the place? Yeah, so it's a great question about Chicago. I mean, so people think of Detroit as like the motor city, as a place that was like epitomized American industry and ability of the country to build things and transform manufacturing in the world. Chicago was a place of politics. It was the kind of muscular hard scrabble machine politics that produced a pretty significant black political class uh, beginning in the 1920s. Part of it was because of the relocation or migration of black people from the South. But part of it was that uh, segregation created an opportunity for black people to exercise their political muscles. And so the first black person to actually go to Congress after the Reconstruction period, which is 1870s, after the end of slavery, is a black man named Oscar DePriest. He precedes by almost a generation Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who was elected from Harlem in 1944. So from the 1920s, really, to the election of Carol Mosley Braun, which is the first black woman to go to the U.S. Senate, and of course, most famously, Barack Hussein Obama, yeah, who's yeah, yeah. elected out of Chicago. Chicago has had this incredible history of black political power. Yeah, the Obama part is like, if I'm as a writer, I'm giving notes on this script. I'm like, it's too convenient now with that history that Obama has his inauguration <laughs> there. But, you know, that's just, come on. 
That's right. But but it's not an accident that Jesse Jackson, who's from Greenwood, Mississippi, who is a lieutenant, a very young lieutenant of Dr. King's, migrates basically to Chicago and sets up his national headquarters, Operation Push, and it's still in existence to this day. Chicago has in many ways been at the center of Black institution building since the early 20th century. So as the great-grandson, and then your father's a Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer, your mother's a doctor, what are you thinking in your youth? Like, I've got to carry this work on in some way, or like, we're good, now I can just do whatever the fuck I want and go get rich. Like, you majored first in (laughs) economics, and I'm curious where your mind was politically, (laughs) spiritually. And I was thinking about getting paid. Yeah. (laughs) As a kid of the 1980s. And I say that uh, both because it's true and also because that was the kind of cultural zeitgeist of growing up in the 80s. I mean... Yeah. Brewster's Millions. Every It's every right. single story. Uh, Silver Spoons. It's all like <laughs> yes. the Drummonds. Yep. It's yep. all about like, get some rich. Yeah. I'm with you. I was right there. So my parents, while they were sort of teenagers in the mid-1960s, they were just a little bit too young to be on the front lines of the civil rights movement. They certainly benefited from it. My mom was one of the first black teachers in Chicago to desegregate some of the schools, to go into all-white schools as a black teacher. My father, although he worked for Johnson Johnson Publishing, which published uh, Jet and Ebony Magazine, you know, did go on to work at newspapers as kind of not the first generation of black photographers for uh, mainstream newspapers, but most certainly among the first generation. And he was at the New York Times, right? Yeah, he was at the Times for 25 years, but he actually won his Pulitzer at Newsday, a Long Island newspaper in New York. Oh, wow. Uh, And that was in... 1985 for covering the Ethiopian crisis uh, at that time. So for me, my parents were like middle-class, successful professionals. And it was like, okay, now what you gonna do? (laughs) And uh, the idea was to simply be a good student in school, follow the rules, and success would be measured by my own professional accomplishments. That's what I set out to do. In my senior yearbook, the caption says, member of the varsity tennis team, bowling team, assistant manager of the girls' tennis team, Dick Tracy Crime Stoppers, which we can talk about. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, of course we should. <laughs> and then my hope was to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Yeah, because in this great analogy they often use, there's that viral video where it's like, okay, if your parents are married, step to the five-yard line. If you, you know, I'm sure you've seen that video. Yep. yep. Yeah, so your parents put you on the 30-yard line, almost some version of the 30-yard line. So, yeah, I think the inclination is like, get yourself into the end zone. That's right. Yeah, Yeah. and I think that was true for, you know, certain. I went to an Ivy League school. I went to the University of Pennsylvania. And the way my story is supposed to be written is to say that because of your opportunities and because of the hard work of your parents, you're evidence that the civil rights movement achieved its goals. That's Mm -hmm. the way this works. By the way, it's not an accident we celebrate so much the the few successful black people because it buys us belief in this system that anybody can do it. That's right. And in fact, that system has been predicated on this notion of model minorities, which is not just about East Asian or Chinese Americans or about South Asians or Indian Americans. It's also about successful black people as the model minorities and the evidence that we don't have structural oppression. We don't have structural disadvantages. Yeah. Everybody who, who puts in the work gets the rewards they deserve. 
It'll never be summed up better than by Chris Rock, who said, yeah, I'm in an amazing neighborhood, but I'm the best comedian alive, and I live next to an average <laughs> dentist who's white. <laughs> like, that really, that says everything encapsulates the whole thing. <laughs> Leave it to Chris Rock to cut through the fog, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How long after graduating from Penn and pursuing cash did you decide you wanted to go in another direction? So for me... Being in college, it was sort of the best that college means. Like I was econ major, I was studying how the economy works. But in the meantime, I had a bunch of electives that I could choose. And I ended up choosing a bunch of classes that were offered either in African-American studies or African-American history. And I just found them more interesting and more compelling. And it was filling in a lot of things I didn't learn uh, like most kids in grade school or in high school. Nevertheless, I still planned on you know, working at Goldman Sachs or somewhere like that after college, except one thing happened, which is that Rodney King was beaten nearly to an inch of his life uh, in 1991. And it was for my generation, and particularly for those of us who were in college at the time, kind of a Trayvon Martin moment, you know, that we've seen recently play out, or Michael Brown, or even for an earlier generation of civil rights leaders, it was like an Emmett Till moment, because if, you know, if there were a record playing in the background, it just literally, the needle just scratched. And it was like, wait a minute, hold up. Like, how does that happen? Yeah. And how is it okay? And how do these guys get off? So that began to change things for me. Yeah, you know, you're not the first person that we've talked to who had a kind of crisis of conscience in the wake of that. And I don't know, he was on a, I loved the show. People think it was trashy, but there was a, this show, Celebrity Rehab, and he was one of the patients. And... Mm-hmm. I mean, what a sweet human being. It's just so heartbreaking that he died and he couldn't stay sober. And as an addict, I just was looking at all that, like his struggle. And and I could tell he felt not worthy of the attention he got, not deserving of that. And what's crazy is that heinous thing he went through probably lit the fire underneath thousands of people that are going to change the world. Like, I can't imagine he knew the impact of that event. Right. Yeah. Right. No, I wrote a piece on this a few years ago after he passed, like literally the week he passed, I wrote something about this. And I said that the Rodney King beating was the first viral video of police brutality. Oh, And, And that part of his legacy had, in fact, helped to change the way we understand systemic violence in law enforcement. And at the end of the day, when history books will be written of this time, more than likely the first chapter is going to be what happened to him and everything that flowed from it. I actually interviewed Rodney King when I was running the Schomburg Center in Harlem, which is a cultural institution. He'd just written his book called The Riot Within, and he reenacted on stage. It was just, to your point, such a sweet guy. He literally reenacted on stage how he'd been serially abused by LAPD. Like, they would just come into his neighborhood, grab all the kids, and he told the story of how the car door had the ding marks from their various body parts that were yeah. thrown into the car routinely. And, and it was surprised me. It's like, he's a big guy. He was like 6'3", and he kind of like acted out what was happening to him. He ended up dying within months of that interview. And so it touched me personally because in so many ways, his story had compelled me to leave a career in business to pursue studies of the criminal justice system. I don't want to get too derailed with this, but it doesn't shock me that because he was so big, he was a target. Like he he represents what they're so afraid of. 
and what they're yeah. trying to enact power over. It's like, yeah, this point has been made on here before, but I think it's worth repeating, which is, as was later explained to me, I, it's not like I realized this, but the real racism of that situation isn't the nine cops beating him up per se. It's the 20 people who wrote reports when they got back to the station that ignored the whole thing. And that's where you recognize, oh, that was the culture there. That is the system there. That's the actual thing. I think that's a, a brilliant way to put it. it and it's not just the, the 20 people who were complicit in the cover-up, but also the process of voir dire and basically deciding that black people can't stand in judgment of white police officers. And so moving the trial to a friendlier jurisdiction. And then the, those jurors denying what their lying eyes told them, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's layer upon layer. I mean, this is an analogy that I think is relevant in this point. When Ralph Northam got in trouble, the Virginia governor, for his medical yearbook in 1984, for being either a man in blackface with a noose around his neck or a Klan member lynching the white guy in blackface with a noose around his neck, which he originally admitted was his yearbook page, and he was one of those people, which he then later denied. And then an investigation said there was no conclusive evidence. Like, of course, so all of this is totally absurd. But here's the point. The racism of that period wasn't the choice that Ralph Northam made. It was also the yearbook editors that thought this was perfectly fine, the school that thought this was perfectly fine, like, and that this went on on hundreds of campuses during those years, and, and to some degree is still playing out. Like, that's the racism we're talking about. Oh, man, I have the gnarliest story of virtually that same thing. And this was only five years older than me, a friend of mine's cousin in suburban Detroit. On Halloween, like six of the classmates dressed up as Klan members. Someone went in blackface. They went into a classroom, told the teacher we're here for him. Everyone laughed. I mean, dude, that was 1986. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and exactly. the faculty yeah. didn't think that was insane. Yeah. 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 Now, I was 14, right? So I tell people all the time, like when I teach my students, and most of my students these days don't need a whole lot of motivation to think that there's such a thing as systemic racism. Yeah. But still, it can be an abstraction for people. And I'm like, look, my mother was born in 1950. So when you think about the history of redlining, when you think about the evidence we now know of the systemic disenfranchisement of black homeownership and the wealth gap that exists today, it's not just something that happened a long time ago. It's mm -hmm. like people in my own family were either excluded from neighborhoods or subject to predatory lending practices because they couldn't get a standard FHA mortgage. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's real. Well, time is a very tricky, abstract concept. I just dealt mm -hmm. with this the other day. We were in England and I don't know what happened, but something was built in 1920. And I'm like, oh my God, that's forever ago, 1920. But then I go, fuck, I'm 46. So that's only two of my lifetimes. My lifetime doesn't feel that long. Like when I think mm -hmm. about it in that way, it's like, oh, it changes. And yet you're talking about five seconds ago, all these things, they feel like they're eons away, but they're not, they're not, they're like five seconds ago. Yeah. Yeah. And Americans, you know, have a very peculiar notion of history, which is socialized. We're socialized to be forward thinking, innovative, let's move forward. Let's forget the past, except when it's convenient to whatever our politics are. Yeah. I had this moment in France a few years ago. It was a simple moment. I, I was about to go for a run on the Seine River. I was there with my family. This is about a decade ago. 
And I just happened to look down at the bridge, but I noticed the inscription on the bridge. And it was basically like, this bridge was built in 1516. And I was like, yeah, yeah. holy crap, like that's crazy, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it just put in context for me personally in that single moment how much more history there is in the world than anything we Americans think of when we think of what happened a quote unquote long time ago. Yeah, yeah, that bridge was eight years after Columbus set sail, <laughs> right, virtually. Right, exactly. <laughs> so once you change directions, that causes you to decide to dedicate yourself. I guess, I don't even know if you knew consciously like, oh, I'm dedicating myself to this, but you then go on to graduate school at Rutgers. What were you thinking at that point was gonna be the outcome of that education? Or what was the goal at that point? Yeah, I wanted to be a, a professor. Like I decided, so I worked for a couple of years at Deloitte and Tuition on the audit side of consulting. And uh, I was bored to tears after two weeks. So I was like, oh, okay, I got to shift gears. Yeah. <laughs> so it took me literally two years to do it because I had to plan, take the GREs and this sort of thing. But I was committed to being a professor. I thought that was the best way for me to teach myself and to share what I learned with others. That, mm -hmm. that was pretty much, that was it. Because I felt cheated by my education and not being prepared to understand the world I actually lived in. And I wanted to do my part to make sure others wouldn't have that experience. Yeah, right. I gotta imagine you walk around with a ton of like cognitive dissonance all the time. It's like, well, I was taught this thing and they just told me, well, slavery ended in 1860, so we're good. I don't feel good. Like, is it that kind of the feeling of like, well, something's missing from the story? I had a lot of cognitive dissonance at the time because, again, as, as I said, I was supposed to be the kid who had the opportunities. Here I was in an Ivy League education in my early 20s. And so it wasn't supposed to make sense that I would be upset by what happened to some alcoholic drunk driver on California Highway Patrol. Like, the cognitive symmetry was that he was a bad person and I shouldn't have any fealty for the choices a bad person made. And that the cops beat him to death really is maybe a little excessive, but he shouldn't have put himself in that position. Right, and right, so right, right. The cognitive dissonance is that somehow my loyalties are supposed to be with my class position, with my opportunity as evidence that everything's fine. And, and I couldn't live like that. That didn't make any sense to me. Humans are afraid of things. We all like walk through life with a ton of fear. And anytime you can kind of dismiss something, it's like, oh, that won't happen to me because of X, you kind of embrace that. So, like, even if I'm you, that's a terrifying notion that as a black man, I could get pulled out of a car and beat by all these people. They'd film it. No one would give a shit. They wouldn't stop it. But you go, but I don't drive around drunk. So, whew, there could be right. a, I'm good. an incentive, I'm good. To, yeah, for your own fear level to go like, well, I'm even going to separate myself from this guy because this guy's a drunk and I don't do that. Okay. That might not happen to me. Until it did, right? So my Rodney King moment was I was basically in grad school my first year. So here I am on the other side of this decision, right, to leave the business world, to to throw my lot in with the common man, to at least understand, <laughs> you know, what they were facing. And I was warned, this was back in 1995, I was warned that in the neighboring town from New Brunswick, New Jersey, that the cops in Edison, New Jersey, pulled over black people um, all the time. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll keep an eye on that. And then one day I'm coming back from a movie on a date and uh, I'm driving my like a 1993 Toyota Camry, which I was very proud of at that time. It was the first car I bought right after college. Very dependable. My tags are all perfect. <laughs> yes, 
My tags are perfect. I know everything's good. I'm going to speed limit. New Jersey State Trooper pulls up beside me, looks around in the car, pulls behind me, and then about a minute later pulls me over. And so when the cop comes up, I'm like, hey, you know, what's going on? He's like, could you step out of the car? And I'm thinking to myself, well, I wasn't speeding. There's nothing wrong with my car. What's this about? And so I'm like, well, can you explain to me why I'm being stopped? Could you step out of the car? So I'm like, okay. I get out of the car, takes me to the back of the car. In the meantime, a second car pulls up, walks up to my date, and starts asking her for ID. Because she's the child of a judge, she was a child of a Chicago judge, she told the cop that she didn't have to show her ID because she didn't do anything wrong, and if he had a problem with it, he could call her mom. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so the cop backs off of her. Meanwhile, the other cop tells me that the reason he stops me is because there's a plastic dealer frame around my license plate that is partially covering the state where the license is issued. And so it's like state of Illinois with land of Lincoln underneath. And so I'm looking at, I'm like, are you kidding me, dude? Like, really? You couldn't figure out that that was Illinois? And he's like, well, you know, that's illegal by New Jersey. I said, you know something? People warned me that cops in this town pull over black people and racially profile. He said, he literally said, I don't know what you're talking about. That's crazy. That's not me. So here's your ticket and you should get back in your car. I was like, but, but, but. And he's like, if you don't get in your car, I'm going to arrest you because giving you a ticket is a privilege. Ugh. So I immediately went to the precinct at like midnight to file a complaint. The desk captain comes out. He looks at my car. He's like, yeah, that seems like some bullshit. You should come back tomorrow. I come back the next day. And I meet with the internal affairs guys. And you know what their excuse was for why the cop wasn't racist and why this was all in my head? <laughs> so you know the title of our podcast is Some of My Best Friends Are. This oh. is the next best thing. Oh, yeah. What's the next best oh, thing? I know what's going to happen. He's married to a black woman. Exactly. Wasn't, no. He wasn't married to her, but, but he had a black girlfriend. So four years later, the Department of Justice basically slams the state of New Jersey for systemic racial profiling on the New Jersey Turnpike. And this is really the first, like, massive case of driver-based racial profiling. Like, not the stop and frisk stuff, but yeah. basically highway patrol, systemically racially profiling black motorists, and New Jersey gets pinged for it. And here I was, just one statistic in a battery wow. of, uh, of, of cases. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert. You dare. Okay, when did paying someone back become social media? What do you mean? Well, let's just say I'm a weirdo and I want to be messy and see what you're up to, like who you're hanging with. I can just stalk your pay app and find out what you're doing. I knew you did that. <laughs> no, I did not do that. <laughs> I don't do that. I use Apple Cash. It's built into your iPhone, easy and secure. You can send and receive money right in messages and keep it between friends and then use that money any place Apple Pay is accepted. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Monica, please keep it in the chat. <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. We are supported by BetterHelp. It feels like a lot has happened this year. It's barely even summer. We went to India for By George. We sure did. Lots to process already. Yeah, but even with so much going on, it's important to slow down. Take a minute to reflect on yourself and make adjustments. And if you need a little help with that, I can't recommend therapy enough. 
We are both in therapy. We are. We proselytize all the time. Talk about it every day. Couldn't function without it. If you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient and flexible. All you have to do to get started is fill out a brief questionnaire. Plus, you can switch therapists whenever for no additional charge. So take a moment for yourself. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DAX today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Dax. We are supported by Uber Eats. Spring is here and now you can get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana? That's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry, no. But a box fan? Happily, yes. A day of sunshine, no. A box of fine wines, yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets, product availability may vary by region. See app for details. I worked for General Motors for a long time and, and I worked with the fleet program who would put on these big events for chiefs of police so they could order, you know, they could test the car and then order a fleet of them, you know, servicing this, these clients. And I was told many times there that most cars come off the, the assembly line in most states with about four infractions that will allow them to pull you over. Whether it's air tire pressure or all this little erroneous bullshit. Yeah, oh, tinted windows was like the favorite. And the thing is, now we know that these were what are called pretext stops. So basically, the standard law enforcement practice at the time was use the pretext of tinted windows, driving too slow, didn't use a turn signal as the way to basically search vehicles driven by black people for guns and drugs. And it was textbook. It yeah. was what they were doing. And, and that's what systemic racism is. Like, I didn't need the guy to either have a black girlfriend or not have a black girlfriend or have a best <laughs> black friend or not have a best black friend. He was following the actual policy that made it much more likely that black motorists would be pulled over to be searched than other communities. Okay, so that was actually one of the questions. So you've written and talked extensively about the endearing link between race and crime. And that's a obviously a big topic for us to get into. But I would like to hear you lay out, I mean, I guess my layman's understanding is simply where there is a tremendous arid desert of opportunity, you're going to see increased crime. Is that the relationship that you explore? What explains that? Please educate me on that. So one, I write as a historian. And so I tell a story that basically offers us a beginning, right? So during slavery times, right, so this like, a, I'm like Uncle Remus story here, my lap, Dax and Monica, and I'm going to tell you a story. So <laughs> during slavery times, there wasn't the need for a criminal justice system to target and lock up all the black people. The point was to keep black people working uh, as enslaved workers, right? So once we get to after slavery times, you've got this massive disruption in the social hierarchy, and you've got these people who had once worked for free now claiming their political and civil rights. And in the South, this is a big problem. And that's when we begin to see the use of the law of the criminal justice system as an instrument of coercion. And so this isn't even about opportunity in the beginning. This isn't right. even about like people destitute and committing crime. This is about racial control. Mm. How do we coerce people back to the same plantations they once worked on for free, but now as freed laborers, to exploitative contracts where they don't get paid 
fairly for their work, but they ostensibly are still free workers. That's right. when it begins. And that's kind of like a mass incarceration movement so that they can get the labor in the South? So that's a good question. There's a distinction to be made between mass incarceration, which actually doesn't happen until the 1970s, and mass criminalization. Okay. And criminalization just means it actually doesn't matter whether individuals are guilty or innocent. What matters is that a sheriff can come and support a landowner and say, is this guy giving you trouble? Right. Because that guy happens to be saying, hey, man, you cheated me, right? Or you assaulted me, and I have rights. And, and the sheriff comes up and says, uh, actually, you don't have rights. And if you utter another word, you're going to go to prison. And you might end up lynched on the way to prison. Yeah. So the other side of the story is that after black people start leaving the South, because this is unsustainable, it's terror, uh, and so black folks start leaving around World War I. Immigration dries up for Europeans. There's still a need to work in factories. And so black people take advantage of those opportunities to start leaving. When they show up in places where I grew up, Chicago, Detroit, New York City, Philadelphia, all these places, they are now facing kind of more what you're talking about. They're facing last hired, first fired job structures. They're facing dilapidated housing and segregated communities where they try to live outside in better communities. Molotov cocktails are being thrown at them. White gangs are terrorizing the boundaries of neighborhoods. And the police are abetting most of this violence. And so to some degree, the opportunity structures are diminished. Black people don't have job security and there's more joblessness. And there is a certain amount of property level crime and violence within the black community. But that isn't even really the issue on a grand scale. The issue is that the police are enforcing racial segregation similar to how lynch mobs enforced white supremacy in the South. Yeah. Now, what you raised also presents another story. And that is, if we compare the experiences of European immigrants, like Irish immigrants, Italian immigrants who come to the country in the late 19th and early 20th century, they are also spit upon, also isolated, subject to racism directed at them. And there's a lot of crime in their communities as a result of their disadvantages too. But at some point, beginning in the early 20th century and leading into the Great Depression and the New Deal and this sort of thing, there's all this effort by reformers who were self-identified progressives, this is where we get the term from today, who are basically like, oh, all this crime in the Italian immigrant community is a function of the discrimination they face and the lack of opportunities they have. So what are we going to do about it? Well, conservatives said, no more Italians. They're bad for America. <laughs> yeah, 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 but yeah. liberals said, no, we're going to help them by helping their communities with more job opportunities with police reform, with civil service so that people who are good at performing policing services get a shot at being cops, right? All this external effort and all these interventions and policy ultimately lead to massive investments in the very communities of white immigrants that have been stigmatized. And just the opposite happens to black folks. So if we hold constant, like, discrimination and lack of opportunity for white immigrants in the 1920s in Chicago as compared to black migrants in the same city, we see two different paths emerge. We see the evidence of crime in the white community being an evidence for opportunity to be extended for Americanization and assimilation programs. And for black people, we see just the opposite, opportunity to be denied and more segregation and more policing. Yeah. And that's the story that explains how today we are still stuck on 
having discriminatory policies for black people who do face higher rates of violence in their own communities, not as a reason to actually get in and rebuild the communities, but actually to put more police officers on the ground in those communities. Okay, so that's an interesting dilemma right there. Well, I've heard black folks say this, like if they're in a neighborhood where the homicide rate is six times their state average or whatever it is, many of those people want police and many people don't. So I guess if it's me, and of course I'm looking through my lens, so yeah, bring more police in. I'm not the one that's going to get thrown on the cop court. I recognize that. But I can't imagine being in a high crime area and not wanting police. I guess unless the police are so discriminatory towards me, I'd rather deal with that. But how do we deal with that aspect of it? No, it's a really good question. And in fact, it's, you know, it's part of what's happening right now in the country where questions about defund have given way to refunding. <laughs> so there's a lot of news stories right now that a lot of cities that took money away in 2020 have now put it back in 2021. And even with the pending election of Eric Adams in New York City, who basically ran as a former police officer committed to investing in better policing, mm-hmm. is a kind of repudiation of a lot of things that, that I've just talked about. So my answer to this, Dax, is that just like I was misinformed until I went to graduate school about how to understand and make sense of the country I lived in in Rodney King. Most people in this country still don't have college degrees and across all categories, yeah. let alone going to college and studying these histories because most people opt out. It's not a pathway to a speedboat. That's right. Majoring yeah. in history. Yeah. It's not, you're not going to get like a vacation house. Yeah. <laughs> right. But even if I'm not even talking about majoring, I'm saying like in your general education requirements, most people still don't opt in like, oh, let me understand the history of race and racism, right? That it's just, it hasn't been a popular thing. So I would say that African-Americans are also victims of a poor education system where they don't know these histories well enough to even know how to make the case as strongly other than more policing. This is why organizing, and so I'm going to shift my scholarly hat to my organizing hat, no social movement ever succeeded without organizing the people to diagnose the conditions under which they suffered. Like, we romanticize to some degree the notion that just because people are living into the conditions of oppression, that they have a full analysis of what's actually happening to them. Right. And so we put a lot of microphones in men and women on the street who are like, yeah, you know, someone just got shot in my neighborhood last week, and so we need to get the police in here. But Police clearance rates, which is the effectiveness of whether or not they solve homicides or not, are less than 50% in a lot of these same cities that suffer. So police are themselves not doing a very good job, and they are themselves a source of alienation for people who feel like, why should I care about anybody in this community when no one cares about me, including the police? Okay, so you have this great podcast and you already hit the name of it. And what a, I can't believe you had a story that actually kind of fit perfectly, but yeah, your podcast is some of my best friends are. And I gotta be honest, when I first read it, I thought it was going to be a show about like, meet my best friends. I've gotten to meet all these great people with perspectives. It wasn't until I started listening to it. I was like, oh yeah, duh. That's what it means. Like, yeah. (laughs) And you host a show with your best friend, Ben Austin, I hate how he spells his name. Please pass that on to him. It should be spelled like the city, but that's neither here nor there. But he's white and you guys are best friends. Yep. And you guys get into it. And I got to say, I'm just curious. I say this a lot and it sounds like I'm saying my best friend, but I was married to a black woman on TV for six years. And I got to tell you, 
90% of our conversations were about race. Like, we loved it. We fucking live for it, both of us. Because, like, <laughs> we're from different countries almost in, in ways. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. we never tired of it. And I remember thinking, it's a shame that there's not some arena in which people could largely and broadly have the conversations that she and I have. I mean, clearly there's so much earned respect with one another that it's a very safe place to explore all this stuff. But I'm telling you some of the stuff we explored, you couldn't possibly explore on TV or out loud in public. But I cherish that among one of my top friendships I've ever had, just, it was so much fun. So I can see the appeal to why you guys have a show that really talks about this. Yeah. I mean, so first of all, it is, it's truly genuine and authentic. I mean, we've been best friends for 35 years and I will say the older I've gotten and the more communities I've lived in where my wife and I have had our core college friends and we've met new friends and the majority of our social community is black. That's generally how it's been for us and how it, how it works for a lot of our black friends. And so when we show up in these spaces and I bring my best friend, white guy, uh, along with me, it is a little bit unusual. I mean, it's not to say that my other black friends don't have white buddies that they've known over the years, but in the vernacular of, of black folks, like this is my ace spoon coon, right? This is the guy who has my back and has had it for 35 years. And so part of the inspiration for the show was to say, one, this relationship's unusual. Two, we've lived life together long enough embodied in my blackness and his whiteness, you know, both together and separately. And that's worth thinking about together in this moment of the country we live in. And then three, professionally, he's made his career as a journalist writing about race and how systemic racism works. He does a lot of housing. Yeah, yeah. He wrote about the most iconic public housing development in in this country, Cabrini-Green, which was the scene of good times. Like everyone has seen the the inside of Cabrini-Greens because of good times. And then, of course, my own work, which we've already talked about. So we thought, you know what? We could model in this show what genuine honesty and authenticity looks like, just like you described with your co-star on the show, for a national audience in a way that wouldn't seem either manufactured or there wouldn't be guardrails on the conversation because I don't really know you like that. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, is there a different cost for you to have him as a best friend than for him to have you as a best friend? White dudes generally feel very fucking square around black guys. I know it. I've watched it. They just get self-conscious about all this lack of juge that they have. And so it would be cool that Ben's best friend is black. You know, I can't imagine he would pay any price for that. But I'm curious, have you paid a price for that? Or is it a different equation? It's a good question. And I think I agree with you generally. I mean, so here is kind of the conceit of the show. So we meet at 14. And by any any high schooler's definition, Ben was way cooler than I was. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's not an accident that I'm the guy who becomes an accountant for crying out loud. When we first meet, I'm Ben's boss. Like we literally meet when he gets hired to work for me because I was the guy in charge of him. Wait, where? Like TCBY or something? (laughs) No, no, no. We worked at a neighborhood computer store in Hyde Park. Oh, yeah. You weren't crushing it working at the computer store at 14? I find that hard to believe. No, I I was crushing it. I just needed some help. (laughs) So we joke that like Ben was wearing Jabot jeans and gold chains at the time, listening to hip hop 
And I was basically wearing guest jeans and listening <laughs> to Phil Collins. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like a body switching comedy. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it is. It is actually true. So that's kind of the how the the story for us begins. And so his coolness. He didn't need me to be cool. He had already established himself as like a white guy who had swagger. <laughs> like one of the jokes is that Ben ended up dating a black woman in high school who ended up becoming his wife. And her girlfriends were like the popular girls in our high school. They were fly, they were smart, they were fun. And so I was like, oh, well, I, I got to hang out with you two because look at all these single young ladies yeah. that uh, are, are Danielle's friends. Sure. <laughs> so it was less about the guys passing judgment on which one of us might be cooler and more about me being like, okay, so Danielle, could you introduce me to your girlfriend? <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. So you guys have this show and you cover kind of a lot of topics, but clearly there is a theme and a through line. You are looking at race a ton. and. Yep. What's great is it can span anything. Like, I'm excited to listen to the episode, but I didn't. But one is, like, the Black White Buddy Cop movie. You guys yep. break down 48 yep. hours and, I guess, Lethal oh, Weapon. Man, dude, is yeah, that is such a good one. I can't yeah, wait. Of all the I, ones you pick, like, that is such a good one. Because I got to tell you, I want to share my own personal experience, which is my father. Again, I'm, like, I think I'm four years younger than you, maybe. Were you born in 70? 72. Oh, okay, 72. So three years. Three years younger, and my dad VHS taped 48 hours. And my brother would go to our dad's house every other weekend, and we would watch that movie sometimes three times. And my father's, like, fascination with Eddie Murphy and, like, what he <laughs> wanted us to see in that performance. And for us, that was probably the seminal moment where I was like, oh, this guy's so fucking cool. And I haven't seen it in decades, but it would be really oh. curious to watch it because I'm sure Nolte's letting some terrible things fly. Oh shit! Yeah, Nolte is uh, Nolte is amazing uh, in this film. So we rewatched it uh, just for this episode, and we had seen it as kids, but we hadn't seen it in years. And it is such a brilliant film. Just the short take on this is that the racism of Nick Nolte becomes the moral tension of Eddie Murphy functioning as a kind of black savior. Like, kind of the whole arc of the story is to get. Eddie Murphy to transform Nick Nolte from a racist cop into a good person. Uh-huh. And once you see it again, you're going to be like, holy smokes, like it's all there. But most people, because it's Eddie Murphy, because it's Nick Nolte, because it's an amazing like cop story, yeah. that doesn't hit as strongly as it does now looking back on it. And so how does Lethal Weapon either, does it advance or does it stay the same or does it go lower? Because again, trapped in my perspective, I would think that movie was really productive, for lack of a better word. Because weirdly, the black officer is in a senior position. He's got his shit together. He's got this great family. The white guy's a nutcase living in a trailer. I feel like it certainly flipped the roles of 48 Hours. Yes, so you're exactly right. It is a Reagan-era version of post-racial America. And so what's interesting is that Joel Silver makes this film too. And it's almost like, okay, we started here, right, with a Nick Nolte character, and now we've moved to this version of America where, to come back to Rodney King, can't we all get along? And so, yes, we can, Yeah. except that Ben makes this brilliant point in the conversation. He's basically like, if you think about that film, there's no role for normal white men to function in this, this America. Like, 
you actually have to have a crazy person be subjected to the authority of this kind of post-racial black guy who's the family guy, who is playing by the book, who's the... He's even a boater. He has a boat. <laughs> He's even a boater. It's like the perfect suburban setup, right? Like yeah. the, the three kids, the wife, and the boat in the driveway. Yeah, yeah. And so what we basically say is in Cold War America, part of the narrative of the Reagan era is that black men and white men can come together to vanquish foreign enemies. Oh, right, and so sure. The whole narrative of like Vietnam and Gary Busey's character is about like closing ranks around a white guy and a black guy where the black guy gets to be the straight man, but really we're coming together because our enemies are foreign, not domestic. Our enemies are out there, not between us. Which I must add, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I had a college class that said, you know, one of the most helpful things to ever happen between black white relations was the vietnam war right it was the first time that black and white soldiers lived in the same barracks and did all the same things and got to talk to one another and that it was a huge step towards where we would want to be so yeah the notion that he's a vietnam survivor and he has this blood yeah to that point they're both vietnam vets and i mean that movie in a way is read on the surface exactly like you saw it as productive as this is a vision but it also submerges, like the film is around a cocaine problem, right? Uh-huh. They're solving a drug murder, Yeah. right? And so it's 1987. It's the height of the crack epidemic. I mean, Los Angeles at this time is like one of the most corrupt police departments in the country. It will be exposed for massive corruption in terms of like undercover tactical units and, and the kind of stuff that they're going the, the on. The crash unit? Absolutely. And so the film glosses over all of this, right? Yeah. And so it's almost like the it's a total inverse. It's both the inverse in positioning the black character as the lead, as the person who's rational and sane. It's the inverse in terms of like, we don't have race anymore. Racism isn't a problem. We all get along. And then finally, it's the inverse in that it actually doesn't address in any way the actual context for what's going on in Los Angeles, which is like massive drug problems for black people and brown people and SWAT teams and helicopters over every neighborhood and locking up as many people as possible. Yeah, it's interesting because even when I think back, at least my memory, like 48 Hours is all about him being black and him being white, whereas uh, Lethal Weapon, I don't recall them even acknowledging that they were white and black. And the young daughter's got a crush on him. Like, there's some subtext there. Like, the young black daughter's got a crush on the white crazy guy. Yeah. And she's dating a white guy, right? She's dating a white guy. There's this great scene where race comes up. It comes up in two places. One, in during their investigation, this little black kid says to Detective Riggs and to Sergeant Martok, who are the characters' names of uh, Danny Glover and uh, Mel Gibson, my mama told me that cops hurt black people. Do cops hurt black people? Do they? Do they? And Danny Glover's character says, uh, uh, does anybody want ice cream? <laughs> That's kind of good, though. Well, it's, it, it is interesting because it's like they kind of just lifted lid off the can just a tiny bit. So it's like, OK, we're not totally irresponsible here. And it could have been a terrible moment where he explains, no, police are here to help and blah, blah, blah. He just knew, fuck, I can't tackle this right now. Let's go get some right. ice cream. <laughs> Well, and who knows what the original script said. So Danny Glover, as a socially conscious actor, I'm assuming if the script had just totally gotten it wrong, Danny Glover would be like, I can't say this. This is totally not not okay. Well, here's where I get the in-group, out-group. Shane Black, who wrote that thing, is the greatest movie cop writer ever. So, of okay. course, I'm going to bet right. that. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is your field, not mine. Yeah, this I is my it. in-group. Yeah. yeah. I do want to talk about, if you don't mind, the episode I listened to, and I, I don't want you to reenact the entire episode, but I do think there's 
something that we all hear a ton that I don't know. And I talk to tons of black historians and black activists, and I don't know what it fucking means. And I don't think anyone knows what it means. But if I could summarize really quick, there's kind of this moral panic happening right now in school systems. There's 23 or so states that have legislation that's trying to outlaw the teaching of many things, but it's commonly getting umbrellaed as critical race theory. And I don't think one person knows what critical race theory is. I certainly didn't until I listened to your show. So I would just love it if we could start with what that is before we even talk about it. Yeah, it's a legal theory taught in law schools. It's not taught in any K-12 school in anywhere in the country. And mostly it's not taught to college students unless they're taking an upper-level course where it's being introduced. And the legal theory tried to explain that while the law on its face evolved out of like the history of slavery and the legitimation of a system of segregation, which the letter of the law could articulate, like that black people have no rights that the white man is bound to respect, which was a Supreme Court decision in the Dred Scott case in, in 1857. Like that's about as explicit as the law ever gets when it says black people just don't have rights. Right. But for the most part, if we follow the language of the law, you would think America has always been colorblind and fair and equal. Yeah. And so critical race theory put back in the historical political context for how the law has evolved from legislation to Supreme Court decisions to basically teach students that they have to understand the law in context. It also took on challenges. This is a little more complicated, but basically it took on the limitations of anti-discrimination law to redress the past. And so the easiest way to explain this is critical race theory understands that it is now against the law to discriminate, but if you need to actually do reparative work, for example, some kind of preferential program that would ensure that black farmers, which is currently a case, get access to loans today that will overcome the lack of loans they didn't get based on discrimination five years ago, 10 years ago, 25 years ago, there are now white farmers who are saying that's discriminatory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's no context in which you could say, well, shit, what the fuck? Like you discriminate forever. And then you say, oh, we don't discriminate anymore. And then you say, okay, you've got all these people holding the bag of nothing yeah. with businesses that never prospered. So what do we do about it? Well, we can't do anything because if you do something about that, that's anti-white. Yeah. And so critical race theory takes on all of those complexities and teaches lawyers how to understand that in the hopes that lawyers will be able to figure out how to write laws and legislation that get us to justice. Yeah, like how to navigate, how to navigate this system in a way that's going to— Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why, it's, that's why it is taught in law schools, because that's where the battles are in terms of how to fix these problems. And I just want to, uh, people that listen to the show, armchairies have heard this before, but I think, again, I, there's the two things that I immediately would just point out for people. When you look at the wealth gap, right, one of the major issues is that up until quite recently, the 80s, many places, you couldn't get a loan to buy a home if you were black. You also couldn't buy a home in many neighborhoods. There was federal buildings that were built, housing projects that strictly forbade black folks from owning it. So, if you can't pass on a house to your children, many, many people in this country, that becomes the nest egg. The house goes to you at some point, and then you can grow from there. Additionally, we were interviewing someone who pointed out, if a black person gets 
100000 a year at a job in general, and a white person makes 100000 a year, the white person both had probably some kind of support and or inherited some stuff to add to that pile, whereas a black person is generally having to send a lot of that money back to relatives. So to build the thing is to, and I'm, there's probably more, maybe there's a couple you want to point out, but just to just show really quickly structurally what is happening and why folks are starting at zero, like this, you know, the farmer you're referencing probably did not get the farm from their dad. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the farmer example is probably the lesser known but bigger story. I mean, so in a country where people pride themselves on being hardworking and self-motivated and independent and autonomous and don't want government down their throats, I mean, the irony is that in agriculture today, there are huge farm subsidies. The sugar industry alone gets $4 billion in subsidies to basically make sure that people cultivating sugar in this country from cane stalks are competitive on the world market. Otherwise, the market would be flooded by sugar coming out of Brazil and India and, and other places that just can make sugar a lot cheaper for reasons having to do with their own forms of exploitation. So like the idea that, that black people are getting special handouts, even within farming, where everyone who's a farmer is not only getting some support from the government, but like horse trading over it, right? Like yeah, yeah, constantly yeah, yeah. lobbying and having debates about, you know, how much support should go to farmers in the midst of droughts and climate change and all this kind of stuff. And so when we look at that particular history, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars exchanged annually to support increasingly large farmers who are overwhelmingly white or multinationals, and there's no space at all to have a conversation about the actual documented abuse that led to black farmers not getting even close to their fair share of those actual subsidies to support farming in this country. Reagan actually, his office in the 1980s lost or destroyed hundreds of claims by black farmers who were bringing class action lawsuits against the Department of Agriculture. So this is a documented problem. And the question is, like, if you're going to fix it, because as you already pointed out, intergenerational wealth transfers, land ownership, all of this stuff is up for stakes. The very thing that most Americans say are quintessential aspects of their identity, right? Owning your own home, owning yeah. land, building and making your own stuff. But yeah. this is all partly a system of transfers from the government to support these people. Well, talking about subsidies, go to the grocery store and find a single product on the shelves that doesn't have corn in it. Why does it have corn in it? Because we subsidize corn. People grow corn for the subsidy. So it drives what we eat, what we live by. Yeah. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Mm. Ooh. Myrtle Beach, I have so much nostalgia. Me too. I did a spring break in Myrtle yes. Beach. Yes. Did you guys used to go there from Georgia? Yeah. Mm. It was a very common beach destination. Ugh. Long sun-drenched days, live music every night, and 60 miles of uninterrupted coastline to enjoy. The beach truly is where your best self comes out. Combine that with the irresistible aroma of fresh seafood, southern classics, and local low country cuisine from over 2,000 restaurants, and you've got yourself the perfect vacation. You belong at the beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. That's visitmyrtlebeach.com. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. 
It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card. Issued by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC, or as a statement credit. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. We are supported by Wayfair. It's exciting when you get your own place or even just a new space because you get to decorate it however you want. I think we forget that decorating our homes can be a form of self-expression. I don't forget. I love it. You've never forgotten. (laughs) But if you're struggling to find the right pieces, I recommend checking out Wayfair. They'll help you create a space that's all you with sofas, chairs, dining tables, wall decor, and more. Whatever you need. I'm helping a friend redecorate. Mm -hmm. And it's so fun. And we just spent a ton of time on Wayfair picking out a beautiful couch. Oh, boy. I kind of need to peruse there to stock the downstairs. They have everything. It's really great. It's time to make your dream space a reality. Every style is welcome in the Waverhood. Visit Wayfair.com or get the Wayfair mobile app. That's W-A-Y-F-A-I-R.com. Wayfair. Every style. Every home. Okay, so let's get into a provocative question. I'm a white dude. Probably the main adversary of the LBGTQ community is white straight males. Probably the common adversary of the black community is the white straight male. It does as a white straight male of women, the common... (laughs) Yes, adversary is the white straight male. So I, at times, I can tell you, I'm like, wow, man, I'm the, (laughs) the only thing that unites all these groups is that the white straight male is the problem. As a white straight male, and I'm not boo-hoo me, it's easy to get defensive. I got to say, it's easy to get defensive. And what my real goal is, it's not incumbent upon any of these groups to soft sell this to us. But it is my job to self-sell it to us. And, and the thing I want, I think what people conflate is if we fully understand the history that I'm asking you, Joe White Male in 2021, to admit you owned slaves or that you created redlining, or you're the reason all this happened, you're responsible and you're at fault. And I think that leads to insane defensiveness and craziness. But I don't think that's the ask. I think the ask is, here's the history. Here's where it's landed everybody. Now, what would be racist is to recognize the deficit that everyone inherited in those marginalized groups and for us to not actively try to right that wrong. I think the ask is to right that wrong and not for every white male to stand up and say, I'm a terrible racist and I caused all this stuff. Does that, does that make any sense if I, yeah, yeah, if I yeah, offended yeah, anyone? Yeah. No, no. You acquitted yourself well. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so let me start by saying, let's break up the white guy party, right? Okay. So there are actual white nationalists and white supremacists. They are real people, right? And they actually believe that more people of color in this country are a threat to their position in society. Okay, so let's put them aside. We've identified them. On the opposite side, there are lots of white guys who by dint of lived experience, by dint of education, home training, however they got there, are absolutely fully committed to rewiring the rules of society in a way that are fairer and more just to people who have been historically discriminated. Okay, 
So I think that's important. There's a spectrum. And that's what kind of what I'm saying is like, I feel like there's one label white dude. And it's like, well, I'm not a white nationalist and I'm not a fucking saint. I don't know where I'm at on this. Right. So then there's the messy middle, right? And the messy middle is probably where most people fall, where there's a level of awareness like, yeah, you know, the deck hasn't been fair. And yeah, like if I analogize this situation to white women, right, take race out of it. It's like, yeah, like I get heard in the room. People are much more willing to give me access to things than my sister or mother ever got. And so it doesn't take a whole lot for people to see what privilege looks like. And then the question is like, am I okay with this? And to what degree am I leaning into change? So when the Me Too memo shows up at my workplace, am I the guy who's like, yeah, I'm okay with these new rules, right? I'm okay with the training. I'm okay with the rules because typically, you know, this kind of behavior has gone on for too long. Or it's like, fuck this. I'm offended by this. this is, like, that's a choice people have to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's easier to understand that kind of choice you make as an individual to either lean into change or to lean into inertia and the status quo when it comes to these racial conversations and and dealing with systemic racism. Because the beauty of structural racism is I don't actually have to be a bigot or prejudiced. I don't have to be a white nationalist. In many cases, all I have to do is just show up at work. Uh And the structure of things will produce disparate outcomes, many of which are directly linked to choices in the past to discriminate against. You're right. I don't have to cut in front of you in line. The boss will invite me in front of you. Right. Or I don't have to be a racist as a customer in Starbucks to watch the clerk behind the counter see me before the person who's black who is actually standing in front of me. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And that's that's a weak example because it's not just about like the prejudiced moment or like markets. I point this out to people all the time. Like Credit markets are predicated on assets over liabilities. And so Mm -hmm. you've already made this point about wealth disparities, but credit markets don't actually have to be led by racist actuaries to, on average, give preferential rates to white borrowers because, on average, they have more collateral to put up. And so in the great myth of meritocracy, it's like, well, yeah, that's the evidence of people working hard and saving their money. But it is also the evidence of the advantages that came with white ownership at some point in time. Right. And I do want to add this sense of like, I don't want to be grouped into just being a white man. I mean, that's what all these minority groups have experienced forever is just getting lumped in and lumped in. Well, well, that's why I push back on it. It's like, well, that was the problem. So I don't know why we're reversing that problem as a solution. Like, it was always wrong to go, like, black people are this way, and I don't know why the solution would be is white males are this way. I just pointed it out, though, right? So my first response to you was actually to say, actually, no, there's a lot of heterogeneity amongst white men. Yeah, yeah. And so rather than actually taking the bait and saying, yeah, well, white men, blah, 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 I said, actually, white men are quite different, right? Right. It depends on who we're talking about. And the same would be true in the black community. Like, we can talk about people who make choices that tend, on average, to lead to poorer outcomes. But then if you want to look at the systemic outline of it, you say, people are also making poorer choices within limited sets of opportunity. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I can choose the straight and narrow in spite of the disadvantages, yes. Or I can say, well, damn, like, why do I have to play by the rules in a stacked deck? Bump it. Like, I'm not going to bother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
The side note is I've had white friends go like, I can't believe they're fucking rioting in their own neighborhood. And I'm like, oh, you can't believe that the system that excluded them, that they're not going to play by the rules then to try to voice their disconsent? What? No, you won't listen to them. I'm so sorry, but that's the option on the table to get heard. Like, fuck that. Yeah, not that I'm condoning anything one way or another. It's just like the notion that they should be playing by the rules in a system that excludes them is kind of comical. And there's two examples that I think put these in your uh, your rhetorical toolkit for those conversations. One, to quote Kimberly Johnson, the wonderful activist last summer in Floyd, who was a in a viral video who basically said, Black people don't own shit in these communities anyway. So what are we really talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> On average, she's right. It really isn't, quote, unquote, it's where they live, but it's not communities that black people own a lot of things, including businesses and, and property. Yeah. Secondly, what happened on January 6th in this country is white men of a certain kind literally attempting to destroy their, quote, unquote, own government. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, now, yeah, that yeah. Is yeah. A, exactly. That is an example of tearing up your own shit. I don't yeah. know what is. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... I really urge everyone to listen to that episode that I listened to. It's the notion that somehow learning this history is going to be destructive to, I don't know, the national character or whatever. It is. I mean, even the way that Trump like phrased, I will defund anything that says we are inherently this or that. Like The perceived stakes of learning the history is crazy to me. It is crazy, but it tells you something. Like there's an old adage, right? Like if you're doing something and no one cares, you're probably not doing the right thing. If you're doing something and people are screaming, then you're probably onto something. So in a system that's been more or less unjust to varying degrees, depending on what period we're talking about and exactly how we measure it, we've got the system we deserve because we've taught people to see inequality as inferiority, not as unfairness. Mm -hmm. And so if we actually want the national character to change, we're going to have to change the story we tell of ourselves. We're going to have to be more honest about that history as a predicate for change. And so Mm -hmm. Trump's resistance makes perfect sense for Trump, right? Trump's not interested in racial justice or changing America. System's working pretty good for him. It's his system's working pretty good for him. So like (laughs) when people side up to that, then they're making a choice that like, yeah, we want to keep things just the way they are. And that's a familiar Problem too. When civil rights workers showed up in Little Rock, Arkansas to try to desegregate Central High School after the Supreme Court decision in 1954, what did we see? Not everybody in the white community, but a whole lot of white folks show up. We want our schools white. And then Eisenhower sends troops in to escort kids into the building. So I think that the backlash is the evidence that this is actually the right way to go and we want people to stay the course. Okay, now, uh, again, now this next question I have is going to run the risk of, and I've been guilty of this a million times, and I'll probably continue to be guilty of it. I am the white liberal that King warned against, that I think the pace of progress is going just fine. So with that disclaimer, would it be useful, helpful, constructive at all to create a continuum where on the right of this, or whatever side you want it on, is... The white nationalist who says, let's just erase black people from history books, period. They don't even exist in our history. And then whatever's on the left, and I want to know what's on the left of that spectrum. Like, what is it that is clearly so inflammatory that it gives fuel? Because I really do believe the country in general has just been hijacked by both shoulders of the political spectrum. And I think the majority of us are the messy middle, as you said. So what is the opposite of that? And what is some 
point on that spectrum or continuum that we could perhaps get traction with? I'm willing to accept a certain degree of both sides-ism, but only really up to a point. So the extremes of the left also engage in a kind of authoritarian policing of speech and behavior that makes for little patience for people to actually try to understand because you're basically dismissed if you don't already know and understand. And so there is a history of authoritarianism on the left called, <laughs> called communism that is something to guard against because I don't think that anyone that I want to model my own vision of the future expects to be silent simply because I have a different point of view. Like I certainly value dissent in an open society around these issues. Now, are there limits there too, right? I don't want to be subject to racial epithets at work and this sort of thing. That's where I think the, some pockets of the left go too far. Now, let me be even more provocative on my side. So when people try to equate Antifa with the Proud Boys as two sides of the same coin, and most certainly in the wake of the January 6th uprising uh, and insurrection where, you know, literally some elected officials and Republicans blamed Antifa for it, which is just total lunacy— if I were to take at face value what Antifa stands for, I would say I would rather have Antifa than the Proud Boys any day of the week. And this is where I push back against both sidesism, because fighting against fascism should also be the thing of every American in this country. Right. And it's exactly fascism that not only describes much of what we saw play out in the last administration, but also what black people live with in this country when so-called elected officials supported a total system of disenfranchisement and the use of state power to silence dissent among black people, to strip them of their rights and to use the power of the state to incarcerate, to kill, you name it. So it ain't like fascism hasn't existed in this country. And so a tradition of fighting against fascism, if I had to pick, I'm going to side with Antifa any day of the week. So that's where I draw the line between a quote unquote, like they're the equally bad. But is it binary? Do we have to pick between those two? No, no, not at all. Yeah. I'm just being real yeah, yeah, about yeah, yeah. Like I how, feel you. how this conversation goes. Yeah. But the truth is in, in the middle and not even quite in the middle, like on the middle of America that I think of is people being deliberately miseducated mm -hmm. and being told to throw their hat in with political elites because you're trading on your economic misery for some kind of psychological benefit of being a patriot and an American. Like, food stamps be damned, right? Don't trust the government with health care, you name it. So, like, there is tremendous ignorance and illiteracy in this country that some people will say, listen to this Harvard professor, he's snob, this is why you can't send your kid to college, which is just crazy, right? Like, the notion of anti-intellectualism that passes as, like, common sense in this country is, is really sad because relative to many parts of the world, people are just better educated, not only about their own histories, but also just better educated. That's one thing that I would say the middle has a problem with. And then left of that center, like the center left as opposed to left extreme, is that I'd say, like, there are not competing equal visions. Like, people center left do actually think about community and about collective well-being more than people on the center right, who are basically like human beings are greedy by nature. We ought to reward greed because greed will be the ingredient for civilization and advancement. This is the secret of capitalism. Reward people for their self-interest and their self-interest will drive innovation. 
And therefore, if we just think of ourselves as individuals, every man or woman or child for themselves, then civilization will advance because the people who can't keep up will die away, and the people who succeed will benefit the rest of humanity. And that's just not my, that's not my stick. And the truth is, there are plenty of white people. I mean, the thing that we never talk about is the reason why black people are often pigeonholed as a threat to America from the right is not because 12% of the population has all this power, although there's a lot of cultural power, there's a lot of visibility. It's because there are a lot of white people who actually believe in justice too. And the game that we play is how many white people can black people convince to, to support justice in America? And if we can keep that number low, then we're good. If that number gets too high, then we have a problem. And so Obama represented like the possibility that more white people might be swayed by what he represented. 43% voted in the first election, 39% in the second election. And then the summer of George Floyd, what, 15, 25 million overwhelmingly white people, overwhelmingly young white people in the streets in support of massive changes to our society. No wonder we have this backlash. So at the end of the day, I'm with people who are prepared to change business as usual, because we need to change business as usual. We have more people in cages in this country than at any point in history and anywhere in the world. Doesn't make any sense. We've got tremendous inequality and stratification in this country that is both true here in the U.S. and other parts of the world, not sustainable. And to boot, we have a climate that is on fire. And the fact that like the same people whose houses are floating down Main Street is somewhere in Alabama or is burning in some redwood forest somewhere in California and then look to FEMA to say, hey, where is FEMA to help us get our lives back together are total hypocrites, right? Like if you want to live in this society without government, then don't have government, but don't use government when it's convenient to you and then tell everybody else, fend for yourself. Well, good luck on your next flight without the FAA running air traffic control. But I am going to try to represent the right right now because it's not that they don't care about the masses. They care about individuals. It's not that they don't care about the environment. It's that they're not willing to starve for it from their worldview. So I just want to say these people, they don't not care about They care about something different. What we're having an argument about is priorities, I think. Republicans donate more money to charity. They get involved more in community activities. They have a lot of enviable qualities that the left does not have. We have two groups of people that are afraid of different things in this country, I think. Now, obviously, the outcome of some of these policies are disproportionately tragic for groups of people. And I'll acknowledge they're ignoring that. But I do not like the notion that the right is uncaring, unsympathetic on anything. Look, I don't believe a baby is a baby at six weeks, but I do believe if I thought it was a baby, of course I would fight for it not to die. So I don't think it's a monster. I think they think that's a baby. I don't. I will accept that argument because I think that's, let me put it for my purposes, a carve out, right? But I do think that when you say the right believes in community, they believe in very small communities, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. These are communities where it really is about us versus the outside world. And in a way, the irony of a lot of Republicans who over-index for low-density, small-town America, right? These are the red counties which over-index in precisely these demographic terms, is not places of pluralism, where every idea is welcome, there are actually places 
unlike a New York City where for all of its liberalism, you get on the subway and there's 14,000 different versions of liberalism, right? At best. And then there's like 10,000 versions of reactionaryism. <laughs> the people aren't actually saying what they actually think about the people on the train. That's less true in these small towns because they're much more parochial mm -hmm. and they're much more wedded to a very narrow set of experiences. And free speech is not welcomed because people are threatened by alien concepts. And, and that's just well documented. So I'll agree with you that there is a commitment to community and caring, but it's a very small conception of community and caring and tends to resist responsibility when it extends beyond that community. And this is part of the logic of states' rights and the resistance to government, which is to say, like, we take care of our own, which is only partially true. And so why should we have to do X, Y, and Z because the government tells us so, even though red counties are net recipients of federal receipts? Blue counties are paying the subsidies for red counties to have what they need in order to have a social net. Yeah, that is one of the great ironies. Yeah, I mean, look, you and I think the same. I think these are human beings. I mean, my sort of enthusiastic response to the question before, where clearly I got excited about it, is not to then render those people monsters, but it is to say that when we have to act on our beliefs in a two-party political system, it's quite a puzzlement as to why a Donald Trump would ever become president in the first place. That the man doesn't represent in his own life and lived experiences any of the values that he purports. What are you talking about? He's a very religious man. <laughs> Did you see him hold that Bible? Oh my God, I never saw something look so natural in someone's hand. It just, I mean, I don't think you have to be a crazy liberal to point out like, like this stuff just doesn't hold up to reasonable scrutiny. I mean, for Mike Pence, for crying out loud, I lived in Indiana for six years. I taught in the heartland. I have a child who's a Hoosier. And Mike Pence, I don't agree with a lot of, of Mike Pence, but I give Mike Pence at least respect for living the life that he represented before Donald Trump pulled him into his team. Yeah. And poor guy was subject to a lynch mob at uh, the Capitol for drawing a line around what happened in the election. The Constitution. How dare he? I mean, he's crazy. Yeah, yep, 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 yep. It's a wild country we live in. <laughs> Freedom! <laughs> Listen, your podcast is spectacular. I wish you a ton of continued success with it. And I think it's a really cool concept. I do want to add, because I could imagine, based on the description I gave, that you might think there is some preachy tone to it, but it is not at all. It's very irreverent and very fun and very back and forth. Like, I found learning about that critical race theory to be a party which you're not expecting yeah. when you think you're going to dive into that. <laughs> yeah. So I think you've achieved something yeah. pretty great. So I so appreciate you being on the show and I hope it goes thanks, uh, thanks. continued success. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Monica. Thanks Thank for you. your time, for your patience and uh, much success to both of you too. All right. Take Thank care. You. Okay. Bye-bye. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Batman. We had a very sexy guest <laughs> just now. My clothes did not implode. That's progress, I guess. Yeah, but I'm wearing a big, thick sweatshirt. But I did really like him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you are fucked up a little bit. Yeah. He, um, oh. Hmm. oh, man. Well, we'll reveal <laughs> who so that fun. is. We'll reveal who that is. This is, this is, this is my favorite. This is my favorite.
But you you felt like that too. Well, the, but look, we have the same type, I think. It's like, I'm going like, yeah, I could fucking bro this guy. Like, I could hold my side of it. Mm-hmm. Like, it'd be good for him. And then you're similarly having a similar thing. <laughs> yeah, I guess. What am I doing? What's happening in my head? It's carnal. Yeah, it's just it, it, it's just it, it, physical. Yeah. Well, and no, I really liked his personality. Of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course you did. So you have any updates? Oh, who cares? How's your tattoo? Oh, it's good. I'm getting really close to being able to take that wrap off. I think tonight I'm allowed to take Ooh, it off. And great. I can't wait to see this beautiful bird in all of its... Glory. Glory, luster, uh, oh. majesty. I'm really excited to see it too. I really like it. Like I've been I've been walking by mirrors as one does in their real life. And every time I glance, I'm like, oh yeah, I should have always had this bird on my arm. Yeah. Like it feels right. If, it, the yeah. first two, I was like, eh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I think I'm going to grow into them. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like love. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I was like, yeah, I dig it. This is like love. It's awesome. I, you know, I already knew this, but I got to continue to always be more colorful, more kind, more friendly, less macho, less tough. Yeah. And so this for me is, it's, it's a step a in that right direction. That? Yeah. It's like, it's, it's colorful and pretty and fun. But it's also a crow. Crows are Very smart. Tough. Very smart. Well, this might interest people. Now that I've committed to a crow, and I know that you call a group of crow a murder of crow, which I love. And then that drove me to find out why. Uh Uh-huh. It's called a murder of crow. And the explanations are, of course, you know, they eat carrion. So generally they represent when something's about to die, they'll be hovering around. So they've become synonymous with death. But it also pointed out that that w- they were named, the grouping of crows was named during a period where many of the group names in science were in this poetic phase. Oh, interesting. So a couple of other really interesting ones was, um, it's called an ostentation of peacocks. An ostentation? Yeah, really? Yeah, like a group of peacocks is called an ostentation oh of peacocks. Oh my God. Because they're ostentatious. That's really funny. Isn't there one that's like a hug of elephants or like something oh. like, not a hug, but something like that, like very sweet. Yeah. And it's probably happened in that same time period where they were getting a little fanciful with the naming. Oh. I like it. I like it too. A murder of crow is so cool. Do you know what a group of magpies are called? Parliament? Oh, oh, no, wait. Owls are also a parliament of owl because they're so studious. Oh, yeah, they owls sure are. are too. Yeah. That was in the, the list and I had forgotten it. So thanks. So, wow, the magpie got that as well, huh? There was one outside my backyard this morning and it sounded crazy. Oh, really? I don't know that I know what a magpie is. Oh, we're going to get a little a video of it if you are. Oh, I want to hear. hear it. Wow. I would have felt like I was in Rio, Rio, Rio. It is. We only have one fact for Khalil, which is sad. Actually, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Oh, there's a host of facts? Yeah, there's a murder of facts. Oh, there's a murder of facts. Okay. One is, you were saying this fast, so I don't, I think you just flipped your words. Oh, oh. Uh, but you said that Obama's inauguration was in Chicago. Oh. But his his celebration party. Yeah, the day he won. Whatever his acceptance that's speech was there in Chicago. Oh my gosh, what are you doing? Well, I had some extra tissue uh-huh. and I had rolled it up and I didn't know what to do with it, so now I've placed it in one of my holders. I see that. It's yeah. in your nose. This okay, the other day I was taking a walk around our neighborhood. Uh-huh. And there was a young lad. Okay. 
cute face. Sure. How young? Mid to late 20s. Okay. I just want to make sure we weren't talking about like a teen yeah, or yeah, a yeah. child. No, okay. that was a good clarification. Mid to late 20s, on the phone, or maybe 30, I don't know. He was on the phone, like talking some business stuff, whatever. Okay. Running now, his business. Yeah. And he, I was walking and I was like, something's like on, that, is that person crazy? Like mm. there's something on his face. But then his conversation seemed very normal. Okay. And he saw me and he said, hi. And I was mm. like, hey. Oh, wow. And You're out there making friends. <laughs> and he had tissue in his nose the exact same way you just did. Oh, really? Like rolled up long. Both nostrils or no, one? one. Maybe he had um, banged, banged back a, a gram or two the night before out oh. of that nostril, and he had to plug it up to deal with the rest of his day. Because of the blood? Yeah, blood and yeah. the leakage and the damage, really. Maybe. It's hard on your nostrils to blow lines. Well, I guess I'll know if you are doing that. That's a good indicator. Well, you'll know when I'm on cocaine when I don't show up to work. That'll be a really good <laughs> indicator. Yeah. When I'm calling you and I'm in some hotel somewhere with strangers, that's a pretty good giveaway okay. that I'm I'm ripping rails, yeah. Yeah, and he, you know, then he was like, oh, no, nothing. I was just saying hi to a neighbor. And then he continued, you know, he was up back on his phone call. And, and I thought about it for, like, at least a lap. You were like, intrigued. What's going on? Mm-hmm. Well, we have one theory in the mix. But he wasn't, he wasn't, like, embarrassed maybe he had forgotten at that point it was in there maybe oh you walked God. away and he was like oh my fucking you stupid son of a bitch you're supposed to take this out before you left your apartment oh shit well his house his house yeah he's a homeowner a- i don't want to diminish his standing <laughs> in our society yeah. or neighborhood uh similarly okay so that just cued one thing i just left chelsea a handler's podcast yes. which was really fun it's at a, a facility that does many podcasts. I don't know which one, but I had to go into kind of a big lobby at first, and there was an older gentleman there. And then I went and did the podcast, and then before I left, I, I went and peed. Well, he was in there again. Mm, mm. And I did not see that he had a Bluetooth thing in his ear. So I went into the urinal, and he said, oh, you followed me in here. And I said, yeah, and I'm going to follow you to your car. And then he and then he seamlessly goes, well, if you, you got to eject that thing and then put it back in and repower it. Wait, what? And I was like, what the fuck was that? And I like looked at him like, what am I supposed to, how am I? He, he was on a call and his Bluetooth was very small in his I ear see. and he was mid conversation when he said that to me. And then he just popped back into his sure. other. But I was like, I, I panicked. I'm like, what pop? What is God. that a reference to my penis? These and, days you just never know when people are talking to you and they're not talking. That's the moral of it. Another moral is check your face before you leave the house. But look, he also might've totally known and just didn't care. Do and you think that was his way of nagging you? It worked. I thought about him a lot. Because I realized I've admitted to myself that I have a, I have a way of nagging people. Oh. It's a reverse nag. So I would never say anything <laughs> derogatory about a woman to uh-huh. herself. Uh-huh. But I do think I have been in my life embracing something that we, societally, we know is off-putting. Like what? What do you mean? With Gwyneth. So Gwyneth Paltrow is here. Yeah. I can't get my foot out fast enough. It's ugly as hell. Like, it's so unattractive, my foot. Sure, sure. And- I show her immediately. Yep. And then it occurred to me later that does have this subtext of, I don't really care if you think I look ridiculous. Oh. So it could inadvertently like, like elevate. I'm above some, you because well, I'm I could not care interested less. in you because I'm showing you my warts. Right. 
And this guy could be like, clearly, I don't care if you like me. Exactly. And that is a weird form of nagging oh that God. could lead to attraction, don't it, you think? Yeah. I'm attracted to people who don't like me, so yeah. Yes, yeah, me too. Uh, it's very interesting. Mm. I never thought of that version of negging, but I do think you're right. There's something that has that, happened. Yeah, I've kind of said that about dipping. Like dipping's disgusting, but there's yeah. something that's vaguely hot about it because the person's basically saying, "I don't give a shit if you think I'm disgusting." So that makes you just start questioning why this person wouldn't care that you think they're disgusting. True. True. It's. It's. I just think it's, it's nuanced. Deep. It's very deep and nuanced. <laughs> Very novel and proprietary, too. Yeah. Yeah, because we could chalk it up to self-deprecation, but it's it's not. You're right. There's something else. There's there's a subtext there that I wasn't even aware of. It was it was later that I, I thought of that. Yeah. So, like, if you meet a beautiful girl, just fart as loud as you can right in front of her. Well. This is what um, Darcy. Darcy did. Darcy Carden did to her boyfriend. Yeah. She burped. Was it a yeah, fart? Yeah, she didn't it, fart. She didn't fart, but it was a big belch right when they met, and she had a big crush on him. And I bet he was like. I'm intrigued because she's not she doesn't she's not worried if I'm liking her. But which is funny because Darcy did say, like, oh, this guy's out of my league. Like she just ruled him out. Yeah. So she was just herself. That's right. Which is nice. It's it is a nice, nice story. I like it. But a reverse neg. In a way. It's in a way. The, <laughs> you do it, by the way. Yeah. I think that's why so many of the male listeners are in love with you, is that you're just yourself. You're saying you're diarrhea, you know, you had diarrhea <laughs> well, last week okay. and and I think they go like, oh, fuck. I, it, there's something hot about it. You're just, you're watching a woman that seems to have a confidence yeah. that is very attractive because you're supposed to be safeguarding people from knowing this about you, that right. you sometimes have a splashy dumb. Yeah, often. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, although we were hanging out with some people and there was an eligible person there and I told them that I... Didn't know if I could swim, and then I had a bad bike experience, uh-huh. and I could tell that uh, was unattractive. You think so? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. You think so? Yeah. And to be fair, I was just telling the story about the the swimming. Yeah. And somebody else jumped in with the story about the bike, oh. so I wasn't really in control of that. Okay. But then it made me look um very inept. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Which isn't. Untrue. It's but. pretty untrue. These are we're basically isolated. Two of the things you are nervous <laughs> to do: ride a bike and swim. Of above millions of activities that you partake in. I'm going back to that hotel, Ojai Valley Inn and Spa. I'm going back there for a oh, where you rode party. the bikes. That's right. And I, you know, I have some anxiety that we might be riding bikes. Are again. you going to train a little bit this time? Before? I believe so. Okay, great. I'm great. You know, I taught those girls to ride bikes really quick. <laughs> You're a good you, teacher. Want, you want me to work with Listen, you? Listen, I did great. I did great, except that one turn. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to put some cones up and stuff. Okay. Yeah, we're going to work on your your agility and your fast reactions to scary things. I'm going to jump out of you. Oh, as, that- I have a tree outfit. <laughs> I'm going to have a bush outfit. I'm going to have a car outfit. <laughs> I'm going to jump out of you and scream. I hope you wear a helmet because I will Hit run me eventually. into you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So obviously the inauguration was in Washington. At the White House? That's, well, at the Capitol. Who farted? Rob. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I, really, I really thought it came from that side of the room I, and I was very surprised. Yeah. I, I can throw them now towards him. Wow. In hopes that I come out unscathed. Oh my God. Okay. This is amazing. <laughs> it was like a door opening. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It sounded squeaky. Well, because I was 
like purposely not pushing because I didn't want anyone to hear my toot. Mm -hmm. And so when I just let it come out naturally, it was longer than anticipated. Sure. If I had given a little shove, it would have been one little pop. But because I was just letting it kind of seep out, yeah. ugh, um, it caused that noise. Do you? It, it elongated. Um, Do I what? Am I nagging you? No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I wonder if you ever, if you're trying to be quiet farting. I am. No, 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 no. I'm not. Oh, I'm, oh, 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 <laughs> I'm oh. asking. Do you ever like try to spread your butt cheeks out? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I do a lot of things. Like when I've been around a girl and I've got to use the bathroom in her small apartment. Sure. And I have a lot of farts. Yeah. What I'll do is I'll sit down on the toilet and I take a big wad of toilet paper and I push it against my anus in hopes of letting out some farts and muffling <laughs> the sound. I've done that. I bet I've done that 30 times in my life. Or I'm in a. Does my, it work? Yeah, I'm pretty good at it. Really? Yeah. I, you're you're spreading your anus apart a oh. bit with the tissue. Okay. So you're not getting the reverberations and the flap, <laughs> the, the, the gazoo, you know, part that makes that noise. <laughs> and then it's coming in directly into some tissue. So hopefully that's, there's smell. If there is a smell, it'll be okay, largely absorbed okay. by the tissue. And I've done this at workplaces a bunch of times. I've done this yeah. in motorhomes. Um mm. You know, like we're all, we all have these commercial shoots and we're all sharing one motorhome. There's like 10 people in there and I got to go in there and let some farts out. Yeah, sure. And I will employ this uh, muffling technique. Wow, okay. Yeah. That's... Yeah, I really urge you to give it a shot. I'll at try home. it. Perfect it at home before you take it on of the road. Of course, yeah. of course. I bet Aaron's been through this. Like as I was telling it, I was like, this is so weird. And then I was thinking, I bet Aaron's done it though. Yeah. That's part of the reason we're so close, I think. It's not weird. I mean, I think everyone's trying to figure out ways in which their farts can't be heard. Yes. So that's just your way. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, Shane Black. Oh. You love him. Oof. Greatest action comedy writer in, in history. Yeah. Invented a genre. You want to read about him? Nope. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're just right. You were right. Oh, okay. You were right about him. Oh, right, because I was hoping I was saying his name correctly. No, you were just like, you just knew his name was Shane Black who wrote it. And, and I was like, oh, I don't know if he's right about that, but you are. Okay. You always are. Well, I mean, I tried to write Lethal Weapon, so of course I know about Shane Black. Oh, I mean, Chips, what do you mean? The pitch oh. of Chips was Imagine Chips meets Lethal Weapon. Oh. Yeah. And funny enough, I learned in my research that Shane Black... Uh -huh. was trying to make a different movie. Oh. He was trying to make a more serious movie. I forget which one it was. I wish I could remember. And then it went through his filter and it became Lethal Weapon. And then I tried to do him and it went through my filter and of it became course. Chips. Yeah. And I was like, you might as well try to imitate something. Exactly. Because it, it, like I could only write so many serious scenes in a row before I have to make a joke. I can't control myself. Kind of like me at the dinner party. <laughs> You know, <laughs> the Tucci. A lot of people were asked; they wanted more info on the dinner party after they listened to. Oh, really? Tucci. Well, I guess you know they've heard. We. I tried to put on a heck of a show, and you, it, you, and you did. You succeeded. <laughs> I don't want to take that from you. It sounds okay. like I'm nagging you, and I'm not. Okay. I'm giving you credit. Everyone enjoyed your company so much. But they might have thought that was really fun. I couldn't do that once a week. More like that. I think Maybe. that's your note. Yeah. I don't know. I don't but know. But what would be delightful for them to find out is like that initial sales pitch, you only get really once. Yeah. It, it, Diminishing. it, it diminishes yeah. over time. Yeah, sure. The second trip over, I'm still going to give them 85%. Yeah. But eventually course. it'll settle into my, I guess who I am on here, like 65%. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well. That was it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. 
It wasn't probably wasn't a very fact heavy. This is what we say now. It wasn't a very fact heavy episode. Well, it wasn't, and also again, again, experts are. I'm just not going to have that many. That's it's just, right. It's just the way it goes. It is the way. That, it's the way the cookie acceptance mode crumbles. It's the way the cookie. Crumbles. Ding ding ding. It's give a mouse a cookie. Now, is this too personal to ask? Mm. Sure. Well, we've talked I... about this a little bit. Will you have some private time thinking about the guests <laughs> today? <laughs> that's that, not. Re- that's too personal. That's pretty personal. Okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> And actually, it's not that it's personal. It's that I don't think it's like fair to the guest. Again, if it's a guy <laughs> and, and I'm on a show and I find out someone took some personal time after I left, I mean, please. <laughs> I know, but you know, like. What's is, good for the goose respectful? is not good for the gander in this case. What does that mean? Break it down. Well, like, it's not a two-way street. It's not like if we have a guest that's a female and I go in and fucking jerk myself that's right afterwards. That's awful, yeah. That's, that's rough. Yeah, that's bad. And what I'm saying is that it's not the same. If if a female does it to a guy, it is not the same. It's like a male dolphin fucking a female <laughs> human. That is fine. But a male human fucking a female dolphin is amoral. It is. It's unethical. It's pathological. It's not right. <laughs> it's okay that it's different. This guest would love, would love, if I bumped into this guest yeah. and I said, I got to tell you something, Monica sped home. <laughs> she got a ticket. She couldn't wait yeah. to get in her bed and think about your legs. Mm. He'd be like, oh, fuck. Thanks for telling me that, man. Yeah, you're right. I think yeah. he, I think he. And would- that's what we have to decide these things on. Well, is it? Because like, I mean, but would his wife like it? Probably not. Well, what does his wife have to do with this? <laughs> She's a human in this overall equation. I'm just saying, like, if I out loud say that, like, I'm going to take some personal time thinking personal about leave. your husband, she probably wouldn't like it. So I have to just be quiet about it. I well, you know, but, but, but hold on. You tough for her. Cause like, you well, don't, you don't, you don't marry someone that's gorgeous and then have an expectation that other people are going to stop finding that person gorgeous because you found them gorgeous. I That's agree. insane. I agree. Like people are jerking off to Kristen right now, probably. Yeah. Someone's given a poll. And you know what? Yeah, that's what you get. I can't have an expectation people aren't going to masturbate to my spouse. Right. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna not answer. Okay, great. I'm I respect, I respect that. One thing I keep to myself. I respect it. <laughs> Although everyone knows the answer. <laughs> Pretty obvious. Do they? <laughs> Pretty obvious. All righty. All right. I love you. Love you. 